Hello, and welcome to the Great Woman Artist podcast. I hope you are all doing well. I am really delighted that this episode is sponsored by one of my favorite jewelry brands, Alighieri. During this difficult time, Alighieri will be donating 10% of all online sales to Refuge, the country's largest provider of support to women and children escaping domestic violence. Alighieri is also offering 10% off for Great Women Artists listeners with the code TGWA at checkout. See www.alighieri.co.uk for more. Here are a few words from their founder, Rosh Matani, and I hope you enjoy this episode. What are the roots that clutch? What branches grow out of this stony rubbish? Son of man, you cannot say or guess, for you know only a heap of broken images where the sun beats and the dead tree gives no shelter, the cricket no relief, and the dry stone no sound of water. T.S. Eliot's Wasteland is so inspired by Dante Alighieri's Inferno, and I chose to create the Love in the Wasteland collection because I was fascinated by the way in which Dante's words from the 1300s still continue to inspire writers and artists up until the present day. Whilst both T.S. Eliot and Dante depict this infernal land lacking in hope, I wanted to create the Love in the Wasteland collection to explore the fact that it's our job to find pockets of love in the middle of any wasteland in which we find ourselves. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most to them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I am so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is the phenomenal Brooklyn-based artist Julie Curtis. One of the most exciting artists working today, Julie is known for her bold, graphic, highly stylized and neo-surrealist works of faceless and fragmented women and food. Often swept up in an eerily dreamscape, her often cropped works allow us as viewers to interpret a world beyond what we are looking at. Working in a myriad of mediums, including painting, sculpture and gouache on paper, Julie focuses on the relationship between nature and culture, as well as exposing and reworking female archetypes through motifs of flowing hair, long nails and high heels. Born and raised in Paris, Curtis studied in Paris before moving first to Japan and then to New York. She is known for referencing 18th and 19th century French painting, as well as fusing together the pop-like imagery of the Chicago Imagists, reminiscent of comic books and advertising. But in a similar manner to the post-impressionist painters, she mines her subjects from contemporary everyday life, representing and exposing its curious, small details in cropped and ambiguous compositions that are erotically charged, cinematic and dreamlike in feel.
Speaking about her work, she has said, In my images, I enjoy the complementarity of humour and darkness, the uncanny and the mundane, grotesque shapes and vivid colours. Julie Curtis, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be with you. It is such an honour to have you on, firstly, because I've been such an avid follower of your work for a long time. And I just find myself absolutely fascinated by it. I first saw your work at White Cube, who mm-hmm. you are now represented by, along with Anton Kern Gallery. Their exhibition called Dreamers Awake in 2017, which explored a century worth of surrealism from Leonor Feeney to younger artists like yourself and Nevin Mahmoud. And it was this incredible full-length kind of faceless female nude with this hat typical of your work with this very graphic like quality that was in the show so I just have to start off by asking you to kind of describe the aesthetic of what your work looks like what does my work look like from an outside point of view (laughs) sometimes (laughs) it's really hard to sum it up and to have the distance with your own work I think my work is it's very close to illustration in a way it's flirting with illustration and like you said, it's very graphic. It's it, it feels flat, but I think it's a full flat. It's actually slightly rendered, and it evokes narratives. It it evokes stories. You you see bits of things of a situation of everyday life, but there's always a twist on it. Yeah, definitely. I love that familiarity aspect because in a way, I feel like even with that nude that I saw in White Cube, it feels so obviously like a female nude with a hat yet is it a hat because it's the woman's covered in this very kind of graphic hair like aesthetic that you put on them yes like you say that I think a big proponent of like ambiguity of shapes that are evocative of several things at once I like shapes and things to be uncomfortable I like ideally the viewer to to look at my images and be slightly confused or intrigued you know definitely I've read that you've said in my images I enjoy the complementarity of humor and darkness the uncanny and the mundane grotesque shapes and vivid colors I mean you just mentioned there how you want to kind of project your figures on to the viewer but how would you really want them to feel because I, I feel there's so much sensation in your works yes you know what I'd like to do ideally I like to kind of entice the viewer it's a bit perverse, I guess. Just invite a person in your home and entice them with delicious food or dishes. And But then when the person gets closer, there's something wrong, slightly perverted, a bit like a first impression and then a second impression. I think because the style and the image I'm doing is very digested, very worked on, there's an appearance simplicity to what I do. Yeah. But I want the second impression to be more subtle, something that's perceived intuitively, almost unconsciously, but that keeps you looking in a way, or that keeps bugging you or keeps living into your head, you know, after you've seen it. Yeah, I think so. I think definitely. I mean, I can't stop looking at them sometimes because (laughs) they're quite... (laughs) They're quite hypnotic as well because of these swirls just, I don't know, for example, like lateral embrace from 2018. There are these two figures kind of, they look like they're about to kiss or something. And in a way, when I first look at it, it feels like quite a traditional painting. And then you look again and you're like, oh my gosh, they're faceless. And what is actually going on here? Mm -hmm. Yes, I've had like a lot of different bodies of works. And I think I used to want to cram it all in one painting. I had so many ideas and the composition would be quite complex and there would be a lot. 
And then I've simply learned that I had to edit out. And the easiest way for me to edit out was just to zoom into the image and to start removing. And by zooming in, images would start to become a little more abstract. So you lose a lot of the context. And in a way, it's forcing the viewer to kind of complement uh, the lack of information with their own imagination. So that's a bit what, you know, I'm going for here. And like you say, there's like a lot of uh, swirls and and it's a bit hypnotic. That's totally what I'm into. Obviously, it's like it, I'm a visual artist, but with the surface of things, I want the surface to be enjoyable. I want the surface to be uh, sensual, as if you'd be touching the canvas with your eyes. So I definitely want to appeal to the senses which is part of this hypnotic thing of like the gaze flowing through those swirls and getting a bit lost in them. I think totally. I think you just can't help but stare, like I said. But, you know, I mentioned earlier that I first saw your work at White Cube Bermondsey's Dreamers Awake, which was really interesting. I guess when I saw your work for the first time in that context, I was really kind of directed to see it in that context of surrealism. But since kind of revisiting it over the past few years, I've seen it in so many different ways. But because it was in that context of surrealism, I think it was really interesting because I think also in that show was quite historical in the sense that it really cemented this ongoing and contemporary interest in surrealism, even though it doesn't necessarily abide by the manifesto. I think it's like, okay, contemporary surrealist, yes. neo-surrealist work. Like, what does it mean? I mean, how do you feel that your work fits into this surrealist category? Yeah, that's, that's, that's really interesting. I didn't even think of the fact that people who weren't familiar with my work would be apprehending it through lenses in a way. And I think, you know, I've been always attracted to surrealism, but there's like a different sides to surrealism, I'd be more like a Magritte surrealist artist. I'm more yeah. into his imagery because I find them a little conceptual. And they yeah. really deal with a lot of art history and archetypes and psychology and things I'm really interested in. So having always had interest in surrealism, I didn't consider myself to be a surrealist artist. But it's funny because the past few years, as my work's become more visible, I've been... Uh, you know, categorized or boxed up in different, you know, places. <laughs> like, I think it started off easily as a female artist, yeah. like female yeah. art. That's not, that's not an actual genre, no. but <laughs> it started that way. And then it became surrealist. And now has, as people are discovering the Chicago imagists, now I'm a new Chicago imagist. <laughs> so... Everyone loves to box people up. <laughs> yeah, and I think also when, you know, there had been this long period of abstract uh, art yeah. and people were like, oh, figuration, hello. Same thing, I became like, oh, the, the return <laughs> of figuration, the new, you know. I'm ticking a lot of boxes and I'm kind of comfortable in all of them, you know, whatever, if it helps you door into my work, if it's allowing people to be familiar or encounter the work, whatever it takes. But, you know, I just think I'm doing my own thing for the most part. Yeah. No, definitely, definitely. I just think it's so interesting how you're kind of riffing on all these different references. And, you know, I guess 
nowadays we're just so consumed by images it's almost kind of impossible to say in a way as an art historian it's we love to kind of contextualize things but we shouldn't categorize artists the whole time so your work is I mean there's so much to it I mean when you really crop into it it almost feels abstract but at the end of the day there are these figures Mm -hmm. it's about people yet they are faceless I mean do you find that your works are about people do you always want a sort of person to anchor what do you try to say about that person that's right. Yeah, there's a lot of people in my work, yet it's not really about people, right? At least not about specific people. That's why I'm not representing the face. Because I just want my characters to be vessels. I want them to allow the viewer to project themselves onto them. It's interesting how I've been, like I said, I went through different phases and I definitely represented faces and sometimes a lot of people think oh you, I'm not representing faces maybe because it's hard to paint a face uh, <laughs> which I always find very funny uh, it's certainly hard to paint a face but it's not the reason yeah. why I'm not painting them <laughs> I'd love that if that was the real reason <laughs> yes it's it's opening a bit of kind of warm for me to paint a face because I have a very graphic illustrative style but would I do a face that's cartoonish you know was like simplified eyes nose and mouth like everything's a bit simplified or would I do them more realistically that's really something I don't know how would I print the face and also I just I find it kind of nice to not give that satisfaction to see a face sometimes it's easy for the viewer to anchor onto a face I don't want to give the viewer that satisfaction I want to make it work a little hard and I want my character to be elusive in that frustrating way. So it's a lot about also leaving it open. It's not about people. It's about a people. It's like, it's like dreams, right? It's rare to see a very precise face when you dream. But in so many ways, there's so many in your dreams and in the paintings I paint, I, I like it to be so many cues about the person or whatever's happening that it's like a puzzle you have to put back together. No, it's so interesting. In a work like Orlando from 2019, you're even showing the hairline and the neck. And I love that because you just really want to get onto that other side and you want to know who that... (laughs) I'm always like, who are these figures? Where are they coming from? Where are they? Where are they situated? In a way, you sometimes will put a vase of flowers next to them and it's like, okay, they might be indoors or they might be outside. (laughs) I think there's so much unlocking with them. That's why I find them so fun. And I think it's interesting that you say you want people to remember them and have this kind of graphic image of them. I find them so memorable. And I think that's why people are so fascinated by them because they're just so familiar, yet they're not. Yeah, right. And I mean, that's an old concept, the Freudian Unheimlich. It's (laughs) something that's, you know, there was a mirror, but he, he thought it was a window onto some other person. So the whole time he thought the person was in front of him was a stranger until he looked and it was his own reflection in a mirror and he was completely weirded out. But yeah, that's the idea of this familiarity and this alien quality about ourselves, uh, how we are stranger to ourselves, yet we are so close to ourselves. We can't see ourselves. I think that my work is about that. It's about the self. It's very introspective. It's self-reflexive. And that's why I think I'll never paint a face. I'm a little scared about it. And I'd never put (laughs) rules onto my own work. And it's really tricky, actually, to not represent a face. It's really, it's a rule I have to work around constantly. 
And it's frustrating sometimes because the position of the bodies, you have to find a lot of tricks. But it's kind of good also in another way because it pushes me to kind of be creative. And it pushes your viewer as well, I think, to be creative. But yeah. I'm so intrigued because I should add that we're recording this virtually because of the lockdown. And I can see there's a work behind you in your studio where these girls, they've got some kind of cell <laughs> yeah. phones or something. And are they like flip phones or iPhones or something I can't really see properly. But does that even not have a face on that one? Oh, no, no face, no. Yeah, oh it's my like gosh. some blurry. So yeah, it's a <laughs> painting of two girls who are holding their cell phones like they're taking selfies. Yeah, And that was really hard for me to figure out how I was going to represent the phone. And I still don't know if I'm happy with it. But yeah. it says a little bit about my process. And when I was at MoMA, I was sitting and there were these two girls sitting next to me that looked like a bit like clones. And they were holding <laughs> their cell phone at the same time, taking a selfie at the same time. And that was such a weird... Of themselves or the art? Of themselves. It's just no art. Like they were looking at themselves, both at the same time, taking a selfie simultaneously. And I was, oh my God. This is, wow, this is very weird. And then I was like, I got to paint that. And it was something very beautiful about their hair and the way, the, the symmetry of it. But anyways, all these attempts of being special right like everybody is special but the social media's platforms and how we all try to exist and create an identity it's a virtual identity and and at the same time there's no face so there's something sadly anonymous about it and it's about everybody trying to be special doesn't make it special anymore and so is that how it works you'll take a photograph of something and then you'll base your photographs on it or are they sometimes for imagination yeah it's rare that i take a photograph of the thing i want to paint if i do that it's just because i want to remember that i that was an idea i had yeah. the works never start off a photograph because the more mental images or things i've stumbled upon and then I reconstruct in my head later on. What struck me was more the idea than the reality of what happened of a situation. Sometimes I just take note, like for that, it would just be double selfie moment. <laughs> and I know I, I have this image in my head and that stays, that's all I need, three words. And that's work. And then I sketch it and then I re-sketch it several times until I start on the canvas and then I can still change. And Sometimes the initial idea is not enough and I need to yeah. add to this original idea. And all your works, they are sort of abstracted humans in a way, but they all seem like women for me. I mean, why are you interested in specifically focusing on that? So that's a good question I kind of struggle myself with. I was trying to figure out why that is. I think the obvious first reason is that uh, I'm a woman. Yeah. Since my work are about reflection, so it's easier for me to start from there, start from the body that I know, from the self that I know as a female. But also I was thinking more about my first love in art. I remember the first artworks I really locked with, and they were posters at my uncle and aunt's place of paintings by Vermeer, like the woman with the pearl, or the close-up of the Latour character's face that's looking sideways. It's very intense face. And I remember as a child being completely fascinated by these images. And just at that age, you don't care who made that. You're not asking, who made this painting? You don't care about yeah. who made the painting. Yeah. You just lock in with what you're looking at, the image itself. And those women were so mysterious to me. 
And they were also out of context. And but yet I couldn't stop staring at them. Yeah. But I, I think what's interesting as well, you kind of really hyper the sort of femininity with stuff like long nails or this long hair. They feel very hyper feminine or maybe even kind of looking at kind of stereotypes. In a way, they feel quite like 80s American or something. Yes, because they're yes. so, <laughs> they're totally. so kind of over well done and, and the hair is so perfect and shiny. I mean, why do you like to incorporate these kind of hyper feminine details? Yes, yeah, it's, it's almost like um, it's a language, right? Yeah. It's like playing with a language that's absolutely not mine. People keep staring at my hands and be like, where do you get these long nails from? <laughs> and the nails I can think about, it's, you know, I remember my mother really working on her nails, even though she's nothing like the woman I'm representing. Yeah. But like you say, I'm representing more stereotypes, there's archetypes, there are two different things, but yeah. both live in people's imagination, right? And I'm working on those vessels for imagination. And we were talking about familiarity and the idea of stranger, alien-like characters, like this duality. And I guess this women, or maybe version of myself or other people, they're, you know, what Jung calls animas. They're the version of a female figure that's not me, but that still live in my unconscious. So they carry a lot with themselves, but also I'm French and coming to America, there's an aspect of American culture that's yeah. really like into that superficiality. And I've always loved it. And it's something that's coming back over and over in movies and TV shows. It's hypercultural. Yeah. And so I'm using a bit that material. I'm borrowing it because of all the psychic connections it carries. And another side yet is <laughs> I'm fascinated with the way women kind of curate themselves. It's yeah. a way of displaying, it's a power and it's a form of staging, right? Like taking care of so much of your outside appearance. And what does it say about the inside, right? So again, we are in the idea of the shell and all these attributes that nature gave us, yeah. they have a function, right? And the way women do the nails to the point where they're absolutely not functional anymore. Or the hair. And to come back to this kind of form of staging of oneself, there's a lot of the idea of what is seen and what's hidden, right? What do I choose to reveal and what I choose to hide? And one works so much on the outside, what is it that it inside and is trying to be concealed, right? What is easy to show of yourself and hide behind, right? So it's a lot of things like that I'm interested in. So there's a lot of allusion to a hidden aspect of the self, what's under the surface. And that's yeah. just alluded to, and that's what creates attention in the works. Yeah. Totally. I mean, I mentioned this in the introduction, and I don't know if you like being associated with it at all. I mean this in only a positive way, but to me, there is also this sense of kind of advertising in it. I know that you're a ex-employer of Jeff Koons. And what I was researching for this, that really fascinated me because his work in the 80s, all about the kind of liqueur and, and what this means. And it's like, actually, I, I find a lot of similarities in a strange way in the sense that they almost feel like adverts because they are these kind of perfectly manicured portrayals of American housewife life I mean maybe I'm British as well so this is my take on American culture and what I've basically been educated being a foreign person and it really intrigued me that it's it's almost as though they feel kind of sellable because they're so they're so perfect 
Yeah, right. I think uh, so. That's where we, maybe we we share a lot. I'm French, so my my take is totally. <laughs> you know, it's like when I think of these dark animals, I'm thinking of David Lynch a lot. Yes, yes, totally. That way, is what I'm thinking of. Yes, exactly. That darkness, so much darkness, yeah. but that he, he, he's borrowing all these languages, right? And he's just making his own soup with it, and it's so excellent, but so disturbing and worrisome. I share this fascination for some aspect of American culture. And I love Jeff Koons. I love his work. And I think there's so much also about his work that's about the surface, but also a certain uh, grotesque tendency into being so much focused on the surface and on the look and the superficiality. And it's something so anal about it. So uh, underdeveloped. But I think his work is very deep, you know, in other ways it's, Still pointing at this aspect of American culture, I'm fascinated with. And talking about, I was thinking, I did mention the motif of the housewife. There's something about that era. We're talking about like the post-war 1950s, 60s in America, but also in Europe. Another favorite movie director is Jack Tati. Yeah. Have you seen like, you know, Playtime or My Uncle? It's all about modernization, the industrial world and wealth and it's like a very optimistic time it's before the fall like 1970s when everything you know people starting to see things a little for what they were but like my consumption and like the housewife kind of also and the businessman they represent a bit that era right yeah and i really like that representing that (laughs) era i don't know why like I'm fascinated by it as well. Yeah, because it's almost like this utopia. And we know now we live in our world. We know that that was not, (laughs) that's not the way. It's such a lie. You look at it back and I'm just like, how did you think like that? (laughs) So there's a lot of ideas pertaining to that time. The way people interacted with these new mechanized technologies into everyday life is kind of hilarious. But also for me, it reflects to how we are now with our own phones and technology how we don't really understand what are the bigger implications of what we use we're very optimistic with like oh this is great technology i think we're gonna come to term with that soon when stuff really gets serious but there are definitely (laughs) parallels in my head yeah no it's interesting you should talk about bringing people like david lynch in film because they do feel very cinematic Mm -hmm. for me my favorite thing is to kind of project a story on a painting but even you kind of give hints of it even with your titles or something something like the guest with the lobster and then you see the hand sort of coming through and it's like oh my gosh what's about to happen i feel like with your work maybe it's just me but you're sort of documenting this like point of suspension and and something's about to happen or something's just happened there's something quite quiet about it but at the same time it's like something's about to encroach on something it's quite like like I said unnerving I mean do you ever think about the narratives in your head or is this just something that is completely separate yes and it's it's hard right because there's I feel like I'm doing so much direction in many ways I'm like pretty precise on how I want exactly the thing and like creating that tension it's a little bit of work to create like what is it that's going to create this tension and like all the implication of the situation and everything that's left out of the frame how do you activate that everything that's implied so i think that uh, participates to the narrative aspect of my work and also there's a letting go of however other people are gonna interpret something and like kind of keeping it open that's very it seems very important to me like I control so much and then there's a moment where 
have to let go. Like we were talking about dreams. I feel there is this interesting notion of things being elusive. The more you think about a notion and the more it eludes you. And that's why I feel like I'm trying not to be commenting too much literally on to what I do. Because I want to like keep the meaning as open as possible. Yeah, absolutely. But I find it interesting as well, the fact that you are zooming in so much. I think that adds to that notion or quality of perfection or idealism. It almost feels quite photographic, the fact that it's very obviously framed. Yeah, it's very obviously framed. And I'm already doing so much into forcing the viewer into something. But like the way, the same way I said, like the more you think of a notion, the more eluding it becomes. It's the same with zooming in. The more you yeah. abstract something, that, like you would think I have my image and the more I zoom on it, the more precise it becomes. But then it, because of all the things that are left off, it also becomes more and more abstract, which means less and less precise. So really paradoxical things. It, it's very fascinating to me. Yeah, because it's like, you know, I mentioned earlier that I was introduced to your work, Venus, yes. from 2016. And it's like, okay, that's obviously a figure. But then if you look at, again, something like Lateral Embrace for the first time, you might not think it is. I think it's interesting what people come to first. But I love your integration of food as well. Oh, I yeah. mean, yeah. <laughs> and this, again, these like perfect salads or this perfect sushi or this perfect lobster or whatever. <laughs> I mean, when did your fascination with food begin? As far as I know, I've worked with the body. And I think the food's related to the body, even if it's a later motive in my work, I think it became so obvious. And also, I mean, my dad is a very good cook, is Vietnamese, and Vietnamese culture, food is such an obsession. And it's very reflective as well. Often the dilemma you have in the foods I'm offering to you is that you can also project yourself onto the food and the food becomes animated, becomes lively or alive but also you feel uh, some form of sympathy like for instance guests i think this lobster that lobster feel alien at best of times right but then yeah between those green hands the, the hand is almost more alien than the lobster itself but also like symbolically to food there's so much about something you put inside your body and you digest yeah. and so many uh, psychological associations with food. That's why people have so many eating disorders. Yeah. So um, there's a lot pertaining to food and to our disconnect to the things we put inside our body. We, we're not hunters anymore. We just don't hunt and gather our foods like we used to. And we outsource it in a way that feels often wrong. And I'm not putting a, a judgment here. It's just the way it is. We, we Seriously, we're not all going to go back to hunting. Yeah. It's not possible. Maybe after coronavirus, I don't know. <laughs> oh, but it's a bit like the modern condition. Yeah. One of my favorite works of yours is Entree from 2017. And it's of this fish that is sort of perfectly cut up. And it's as though he's... I mean, the fish almost looks like it's alive. And there are also <laughs> like it's also next to a fish tank. And it's just so disconcerting how it's been almost murdered so beautifully. I know, it's, but that isn't that the way you feel every time. Well, I think it's like I know maybe there's some fisheries or fish places on the coast that do that, but mostly like you go to Chinatown or something, and they're like, "Here, you can pick your your fishes." Like, oh, I don't know, I feel about that. It's, it's, it doesn't seem cool. I, I, know, I don't. So... I don't want to know. I don't want to know. It's just like you know the way you outsource the act of killing. Yeah. 
Yeah. Because, you know, I could, like most of us, if we were, we had to cure for our own food, we'd be, <laughs> we, we couldn't do it. We would have to be all vegans or something. So, yeah. are you vegetarian or you eat no, meat? No, I, I, I eat meat, but I think just looking at something like Andre, I mean, really makes me <laughs> sad and I, I shouldn't. What about you? Are you? Yeah, it makes me sad, but I love meat. Yeah. I love foods. I love the variety of it. I don't think I can do the switch. To be honest. <laughs> so I want to go back to your beginnings in art. You were born on the outskirts of Paris in the early 1980s. Tell me about your childhood. Were you surrounded by art as a child? More or less. I don't have a family of artists. I have a family of nurses and teachers. I come from, a, my, my grandfather was a worker union representant. So it's like very worker family. And so I didn't have these examples of artists, but my parents were always really interested in art, always tried to bring me to the museum, just do the best for their only child. I went to, I studied music. I went to dance classes. In a way, my dad is very artistic because he's a very good photographer, but that's something that's very intuitive. That's not something he was raised in. I just think it's interesting how, you know, I've read and I've heard you sort of speak about how you went to Parisian museums growing up. And obviously still now you are referencing people like Corbet. I mean, what did those works instill on you as a child? Yeah, I think like we talked about those posters I was completely um, yeah. fascinated with. And I think I locked on my favorite art pieces were depicting females. I think it was this, a projection thing. And one of my favorite sculptures as a little girl, because I, I wanted to be a ballerina, was the little ballerina by Degas, the sculpture. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was so lovely. It was also a little weird and creepy because, she, you know, she has this bronze like black kind of caked hair kind of strangeness about it with the awkward thin body yeah but i just couldn't quit staring at her i was like what was she what's the story around this so and yeah i've uh, i think going to orson museum in particular was one of my dad's favorite museum and i loved going in the the main aisle when you have all these marble sculptures and there was a sensuality to them that was very overpowering as a little girl and yeah. this, this, again the surface was very very attractive and I just think as an only child I had a lot of time to kill so my parents had to I feel like maybe it's a little different now when the way kids are raised but when you're by yourself and your parents are not going to do activities for you, especially yeah. if your parents are older. <laughs> and I spend a lot of time just drawing or keeping myself busy and uh, imagining things. So that was art practice before art practice. Being yeah. in your own heads yeah. and just do stuff. Yeah, definitely. But I think it's interesting you mentioned about those sculptures. And they are yeah. really fascinating because they, I mean, tell me, what, what are they made out of? So a lot of them are made out of hair synthetic yeah. hair and I'm working more with real hair but it's not always easy to work <gasps> with real hair wow and uh, now I'm also making some weird sculpture with uh, basically it's like self-hardening clay it's really weird like when I was in Japan for residency last fall and have you been there in Japan no I've never been I'd love to go oh you would love it and so what they do, they have a tradition of putting food, like what they call sampuru, it's like sculptures of food in, outside of their restaurants. And I've always loved oh, wow. those. They're like really strange. They're either made of plastic <laughs> or wax and they're very weird mimesis, like imitation of their menu, basically. <laughs> and so that's how you pick. So disconcerting. If you know how to read, that's how you picked originally. And then it's just... <laughs> 
people now read, but they like to see their sample. So I've worked when I was in Japan on, on these fake food displays and I just made them my own. So now I worked also with wax, with self-hardening clay, with all kind of weird materials. No, it's so interesting because I've read that you also lived in Japan a few years ago as well. But before that, you were studying in Paris and then you went, was it after this that you went straight to Chicago? Oh, yeah. So I worked in Paris and then I had a grant for international exchange with the school. So I went to Chicago with that. Chicago was only six months, but it was very, very formative. What were your first experiences? I mean, how did this place shape your work? So the funny part with Chicago was that American culture was eventually so much more fascinating to me that... I forgot all the reason why I had gone to Chicago in the first place. I knew there was like this alternate <laughs> art scene and all this cool stuff happening. But then I got in America and as a French person, it was like, oh my God, this place is <laughs> weird and amazing. The architecture really blew me away and the sense of scale and how these buildings make you feel tiny. And the Everything yeah. about the culture was weird to me. All these alternative culture. And then I met my future husband and we yeah. had this huge passionate love thing going <laughs> on. So, so like, uh, what is, what was my art? It was more like a life learning experience. It yeah. really changed me, but I, you know, I didn't even look into the Chicago images. I didn't go to the Roger Brown Museum. And uh, I've only learned of the Chicago images when I lived in New York. Or some, I think I learned about them in 2013. Yeah. No, I think it's so interesting. I mean, you're such a highly acclaimed painter now. And I've read that it's all happened quite quickly. Not too quickly, but in the past few years, your career has definitely been yes, put yes. into the limelight. and. With good reason. I mean, it's so deserved. But what I find fascinating, I was reading this about you and also Loe Hollowell, is the fact that your initial springboard to recognition was kind of the internet. And what do you think it is about your work that really speaks to this generation? Yeah, Instagram was a big connector between me and other artists and collectors. And it was just this like momentum I gained with Instagram that was kind of extraordinary because I've been just making my art by myself in my old studio just yeah. having no exposure whatsoever it was really I, I this was since 2010 in 2010 I arrived I didn't know anybody in New York and it took really a, you know a time and I was doing figuration back then but no it wasn't the right time people kind of liked it but they didn't know what to do with it and eventually I think what happened with Instagram is that as a platform it's giving you a tiny image what can you yeah, convey in yeah. that tiny image? And somehow, yeah. like my work and the kind of work I was doing translated very well on that platform. I'm very image-based. After when you see my work in person, you can see it's, it's different. But I think it's one thing. The images are, well, I think, yeah, because it's such a reductive medium that my images are so, like I said, can give that simplicity to my images. And uh, I try to always boil them down to their essence. So maybe I'm conveying ideas or concepts more on a subliminal level, and that's kind of being received well. But there's also a pleasing kind of aspect to my work, you know, the colors, the bright colors. And definitely, I think also the political environment was just more in my advantage at some point, you know, like the elections, the Trump, all that. And yeah, that definitely it had started previously before that. 
And but that definitely gained momentum when there was the political climate changed. That's so interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably why. I mean, I'm so drawn to them. <laughs> I'm kind of. Oh, I know so many you. people are who are just really? they, they're kind of obsessed by them because they again what we're talking right at the beginning. You know, this is familiarity, and maybe it is because what we're living in right now is this strange culture where everyone has this identity online and yet we can't see anyone's actual face or nothing's quite real and everything's masked in a way. Mm-hmm, Maybe mm-hmm. that's why people are drawn to it. No, I, I think I think there's a lot of unconscious content that's being communicated. And I think also maybe there's something like I personally, wanting to be an artist and looking at the art scene, there was a lot of stuff that I wanted to see in the art world that I didn't see. But then I'm glad I, I kind of made it. It was something I want to have fun. And I wanted yeah. things to be enjoyable. Just yeah. pure enjoyment in art. I feel like, not now, not, I think now it's a little, we are transitioning to a new phase, but I feel still like when I went to school and all that, there was something a bit taboo about enjoyment and pleasure and just the image and just immediacy was not something that was really accepted. But that's something for me that was always important because actually the thing I wanted to do before being an artist, I wanted to be an illustrator. And so there was this immediate connection you have with an image that was really important to me. And I think I've embraced it while I really uh, struggled with it for a long time, where I always felt like I wasn't being conceptual enough. I finally kind of embraced my limitation and I was like, okay, this is what I'm really into. And this is kind of the image and the kind of process. And I don't think it's flat. I just think the way I approach art is first with my intuition and with my feelings. I think going to school, I was trying to fit a model of process that just wasn't exactly mine. But I think back then, you had to always justify what you were doing and why you were doing it. You always had to have a very strong statement and start, almost felt like you always had to start from a concept and justify, or at least that was the idea or the impression I had of what real art was about. And in coming to America, which is a lot less conceptual than France was kind of a liberation. I think there's there's a lot less of that and there's a lot more flexibility. So in a way, things finally came together. It was just a combination of different factors. And now I'm really happy and flattered that people respond to my work. <laughs> and I have actually, to be quite honest, no clue why. Why it's uh, people are, are into I my do, images, I but do. I'm happy. <laughs> They're incredible. And I'm so glad that we've done this because I've just wanted to ask you all these questions and there's no better than hearing from the artists themselves. But Julie, thank you so much. This was such such a treat. But as it says, the Great Women Artists podcast, we do always end each episode with if there was a female artist from history or now who you would most like to meet, who would it be and what would you say to them? Hmm. I'm glad I had prepared a little bit for this. You know, a lot of people come to mind and I'd say, funnily enough, Louise Bourgeois is really the artist I first connected the most in the most obvious way. She spoke to me. It felt like, oh, that's something I would have done too. The kind of art she's doing what she's doing and no one can replace her. But that was just even the connection. And I find her really fascinating in her personality. And she's French and American. So yeah. I relate to her a lot. So obviously I yeah. would have loved that. Yeah. But living today, I would love to meet, and she's not a visual artist, but I would love to meet Elena Ferrante, the writer. <gasps> she's yeah. really was obsessed with her books and 
I feel our deep connections was what she's trying to talk about. And I would love to meet her. Well, thank you so much, Julie. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I'm excited. Thank you all so much for listening to the 32nd episode of the Great Woman Artist podcast with the great Julie Curtis. It was incredible to have such an insight into Julie's practice and I can't wait to see her work in real life soon. This episode was sound edited by the great Amber Miller and if you have been enjoying these episodes so far, I would be so grateful if you were to leave a review as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to the Great Woman Artist podcast with me, Katie Hessel.